This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Looks like you've been missing a lot of work lately. I wouldn't say I've been missing it, Bob. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and, you know, with Grammarly sponsoring today's show, I thought it's time to stop this charade and roll out some of my more, you know, natural language. Just really talk to you mono-a-mono. It's what? It's pronounced charade? Yeah, I doubt it. Today, we welcome a guy who used to work vigorously and now has learned how to do more by doing less. It's David Hauser. Plus, in our headline segment, how much of your monthly budget is allocated to subscriptions? We welcome a guy who knows you spend more than you think you do, researcher Andy Kearns. Plus, we'll throw out the Haven Lifeline. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry, I mispronounced that. The Haven Lifeline, answer a letter from the mailbag, and then I'll regal you with the... What? Regale? Yeah, that's not even a word. I'll regal you with my diviny trivia. And now, two guys who probably don't even know the meaning of diviny. It's Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. What a divine open by Doug. I think he had it right the first time. He only needs a little work. He's on his way. One day, he'll be a podcast announcer. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Hooked on Phonics podcast. My name's Joe Salcihai. Average Joe Money on Twitter, just so you know which voice is which. And across the table from me, the it's me. divine OG. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yes. Happy, happy March 11th. Another week. Halfway through the month already. We are halfway there. Living on a prayer. Uh-huh. I got to hurry this up because I got to get back on the uh, on the slopes with the chitlins. That's That's so tough. Yeah. I f- feel yep. bad for Spring you. break week this week, so off we go. I have never been downhill skiing. Huh? I've never been downhill skiing. I've cross-country skied many times. I've never downhill skied. Most people that have downhill skied, I think it's the opposite. They've never cross-country skied. <laughs> but I, I've gone cross-country skiing, but not on purpose. It was a mandatory evolution. Just sliding down a steep road? Or what are you talking about? Uncle Sam. Had a ah yeah yeah particularly had a program exciting, had a program for that <laughs> just in case the Canadians invaded or something I don't know get these very nice people from the north coming across like, like hey we're here to take your stuff eh okay dear okay okay dear uh, you betcha just very nicely taking your stuff they'll say thank oh thank you oh that's very nice oh thank, thank you. you very much there thank you I betcha that's your friend there in the woodchip ray. 
Hey, by the way, you know, with all this crisp air outside, isn't the air crisp down here today? Yes. It's this, crispy. This, I, I don't know where this is going, so I got to be careful. <laughs> well, this episode of Stacky Benjamin is brought to you by Molecule, the world's first molecular air purifier that reduced uh, symptoms for allergy and nicer. asthma sufferers. $75 off your first order. Visit M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E. See what it's they did just there? like how Doug would spell it. Just think of it that <laughs> right. way. M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E dot com. Molecule. Enter promo code SB. I'll tell you more about that. It's this little device that you can see sitting right next to the table. I'll talk more about Molecule later in the show because, man, is this machine really cool. Also really cool, thanks to Grammarly for supporting Stacky Benjamin's cool K-O-O-L. <laughs> Maybe could use a little more. Grammarly is a communication tool that helps people improve their writing to be mistake-free, clear, and effective. Start writing confidently by going to Grammarly.com forward slash SB to get 20% off a Grammarly premium account today. We got to have Doug invest in one of those. We've got a great show today. David Hauser worked his butt off, often work these 70, 80 90-hour weeks, and now does more by doing less, and he's going to tell you how to do the same. Pretty inspiring story that David has today. But first, we got some headlines, so why don't we get rolling? Hello, darlings. And now, it's time for your favorite part of the show, our Stacking Benjamin's Headlines. Our first headline comes to us from financialplanning.com, a website for financial planners. And I thought, oh, gee, this will be interesting for people to hear because often we don't get to hear the other side of the story, right? The people that sit on the financial planner side of the desk, not the client side of the desk. This article written by Ann Martian says, financial planners take a cue from medicine to improve their profession. If there's one area of financial planning that has always been broken and is the most difficult question we get from listeners, it's how do I start? Most common question. And the most difficult one to answer because it's so difficult to break into that profession. Let me read. Financial planners and doctors are well-paid, highly educated professionals dedicated to helping others. But when it comes to training industry newcomers, the similarities end. Wealth management's been plagued by a longstanding problem, the dearth of on-the-job work and training opportunities for aspiring independent planners straight out of college or certificate programs. Might medicine have the prescription? Several registered investment advisors have taken a cue from doctors in recent years, running in-house residency programs to train the next generation of planners. Although they don't come with the kind of sleep deprivation medical residents famously endure, the planning residencies can last as long about three years. That's generally enough time to meet the work experience requirement to gain a certified financial planning certification. Quote, it's very important for undergrads and for job changers, says Casey Gott, who helped Asperian launch a residency program in 2013 and is in the process of helping the firm where he now works. Meritas Wealth Management started first this summer, and it helps with the problem of having too many senior people doing lower level work. Without widespread training programs of their own, RIAs can end up hiring young advisors out of banks warehouses and insurance companies thanks to the latter's long-standing and well-funded training programs. That's a problem for RIAs with far fewer resources at their disposal who may end up retraining new hires to operate in an environment more focused on holistic planning and less on sales. I like this idea. Uh, Michael Kitsis did a great podcast interview in the fall. 
is when I listen to it. And I'm usually pretty up to date with his stuff. So I'm thinking it was around that time where he interviewed a uh, advisory firm who kind of created something very similar to this. Michael Kitts is, by the way, for those of you who don't know, a big uh, voice in the financial planning social media space. So if you want to hear what's going on in Financial practice planning. management he, and that sort of stuff. He's he's he, got his finger on it. And yeah. even with big issues financial planners face that don't often get covered by the popular press, uh, right. Michael K I T C E S. Mm-hmm. We're kind of going through that at my firm too right now because for the longest time, you know, it was me or me and my assistant or something like that. And it was pretty easy to handle. Then I brought on a new advisor a couple of uh, months ago. And I'm thinking about like all the stuff that we're doing. You know, we both have full schedules. His schedule is kind of sort of dependent on my schedule. But then I'm thinking like, when when do I put training in here? I'm already working, you know, 40 hours a week and he's working 40 hours a week. Where do I put the 20 years of education he needs to get up to speed on? <laughs> you know, actually, I came across a really great practice management uh, training idea from Angie Hebers, H-E-B-E-R-S. And she has a... Um, consulting company and and really funny story. I was talking to my cousin who is an attorney about this and I said, I've got a great idea. I'm going to have Miles come into every client meeting. And he just kind of looked at me. He says, oh yeah? I said, yeah. Then I like he can just observe for a while, you know, a year or two or whatever. He says, congratulations, you just created on the job training. (laughs) 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 I go, yeah. But you think about it, Joe, how you and I learned was that way. Yeah. Right? Well, well, that's what I was going to say. And it was that, much more of a sales organization, but uh, but still, that's how we learned. I know there's probably great training managers in the financial services space listening to this. I'm going to say this out loud. Please don't write me. I think you're the exception. And the reason I think you're the exception is this, is that being a good financial planner is such a fulfilling job. You can live a nice lifestyle yourself. You can get this fulfillment of helping other people reach their goals. And it really is something that when you're successful, you don't have time to train other people, which means the people who generally go into training, please don't write me, are failed financial advisors. And even if you're in the business and you're good at it, you know it and I know it and everybody knows it. That there's a lot of failed financial people. So what ends up happening is a lot of the people that are training new people how to do financial planning aren't very good at it. Aren't great financial planners. Well, at least at least they're not great salespeople. I remember learning though some horrible techniques that might be decent sales techniques. Like as an example, there was a mutual fund that uh, historically did really well when the market didn't do well. And did very poorly when the market did well. It was a it was a lower risk mutual fund than the S and P five hundred. The market at this time, back in nineteen ninety eight, nineteen ninety nine, was soaring, was doing just great. And this particular fund, I'll tell you the name of the fund. It was it was Michael Price's Mutual Beacon Fund. My training manager told me I had to tell my client to sell that fund, and I said, "This is a fund run by at the time ETFs were." barely around. So Michael Price, phenomenal manager, known for trailing the market when the market's low, when the market's going gangbusters, known for rocketing to the top of every chart when the market does poorly. He's got a certain way of investing money that's great for people that don't like a lot of risk. My client fit that perspective. And I told my my manager, I said, "Why, why? Why do we need to do this? And this guy said, well, here's the reason why. It's either going to be you or that fund. 
I'm like, what are you talking about? Your clients just want to see you make a move. They want to see you do something when the market, when you're not performing the way the market is. So if you sell that fund, they won't get rid of you because they see that it's, it's just like the head coach getting rid of a, sorry, non-sports fans, but it's like the head coach who gets rid of the offensive coordinator to save his own job. And I thought that's horrible. Why wouldn't I just, and I still think that, why wouldn't I just educate my client about what this fund does? And if they leave, I'm still doing the right thing by my client and I can sleep at night, but instead I'm just rearranging the window dressing so that my client doesn't fire me. Mm-hmm. Horrible, horrible. Well, that's, you know, that's 20 years ago too. I'm not saying that it doesn't go on now, but uh, definitely much more sales focused two decades ago in, in, in some circles. But the problem is, is as financial planning has turned into more of a profession, you know, now you see college programs that are CFP board programs. And that, that wasn't a thing 20 years ago. I mean, not very much anyways. And more and more schools now are cranking out financial planning graduates. It's got to be treated very similarly to any other profession. You know, you don't have a lawyer who graduates with a law degree who then learns how to sell estate plans. You know, they learn about estate planning. And obviously there's some air of marketing and things like that that you got to do if you're, if you're owning your own firm. But a lot of times people, especially nowadays, aren't joining advisory firms to go be salespeople. They're joining advisory firms to be advisors because that's what they studied and that's what they want to do. And I hope in some ways we don't go too far the other way because I do think to some degree, knowing how to be good at marketing is the key to success. Just being able to sell people on this is how you reach your goals and this is how you don't. Because I think that good marketing actually has a lot more to do with being direct and telling people the truth, even when they don't want to hear it. And I think that's authenticity. Yeah. I think that's what great advisors do. I think the real selling comes when people can rely on you. When you say, no, this is great for your portfolio. No, this stinks. People go, Hey, what do you think about this? Yeah. I think it's horrible. You know, as the years go on, I think there's going to continue to be a divergence here between professional advisors who are professional advisors and professional advisors who are also lead generation and rainmakers because they are two different types of personalities. So you're going to see more and more firms kind of split that way where, you know, you're an advisor and you get paid to advise and I'm a rainmaker and I get paid to rainmake. And that's how the firm continues to go because, yeah, you can't not bring on new clients. That's you could be the you could be the greatest financial planner in the world if nobody knows who you are. Yeah, I love this idea of a of a three year program or a an two, internship. Two, yeah, it's a great yeah, idea. Fantastic. In fact, the one the one that uh, Michael was talking about, they don't even generally offer full time gigs at the end of the internship, and everybody knows that going into it. That this is the training program, and then we help you launch your your own firm, or this is the training program, and we put a really good word into the next firm that you want to go work at. And in our second headline, do you think you know what you spend on subscriptions every month? Well, a recent study commissioned by the Waterstone Group and facilitated by Digital Third Coast shows that you might not. Here to join us on my dad's shortwave and explain the study is study author uh, from Digital Third Coast, Andy Kearns. Andy, how are you, man? Good. How are you doing, Joe? Good. Good to be here. Well, thank you for joining us. This was really fun. You guys started off the study by playing a game with your subjects. Tell me about the game you played. Sure. So we wanted to get people thinking about their monthly subscription budgets, but we didn't want to give them too much information up front. So we wanted to kind of string them along to get different types of answers. 
So first thing right off the bat, we just asked them, how much do you think you spend on monthly subscriptions? And then we got that number and then we paused and then asked them a, a second time, gave them a few prompts, like things to think about, uh, Netflix, Spotify, you know, the, the usual suspects, then gave them an opportunity to make another guess. And then finally, as a third component, we took them through a pretty exhaustive inventory of their monthly subscription expenses uh, and then compared those three numbers to each other. What did you find after you paused for a little bit and gave them some prompts? Did they come back with more expenses or fewer? Oh, much more. So it, it significantly increased each time. So the first guesses were like just kind of right off the bat, uh, about 80 bucks a month. Then it got up to uh, 111. And then in terms of like the actual spending, I think it was 237 bucks. So people were way off, probably compared to their first guess they're actually spending more than two and a half times that amount. Well, and even between the two guesses, Andy, I mean, there's a, as you say in the study, there's a 40% increase in the guesses. Yeah. It's probably a little above my head in terms of like the psychological mechanism there and, and what's going on. But the clear story, no matter what, is one that we had some intuition about just if nothing else from our own experiences with our own budgets and, and stuff like that, that people are not really in touch with the um, number of monthly expenses, like reoccurring expenses. I know I personally, like every time I'm signing up for a new service, like a Spotify, there is this little moment where I'm like, how many of these things do I have running now? And what is the tally? But I, I don't think a lot of people dig in much and look at the cold hard numbers. Well, let's dig in a little bit here. You made a list of what expenses we tend to remember, which ones we tend to forget. Let's start with the ones that people usually remember. Which ones were at the top of the list? Uh, so mobile phone service is a top one. Uh, that's definitely a pain point for a lot of people. Wi-Fi is another one. TV, movie services. So people are thinking when they think subscription, um, they're definitely thinking of, of Netflix, Hulu, stuff like that. So those are the top ones. And then on the bottom end, what we saw was some of those services that maybe people are certainly using maybe for shorter periods of time or they're relatively new. So someone gets on a dating app or a, a diet and fitness app. Um, maybe they're getting a subscription box for their pet for a while those seem to just kind of disintegrate into the into the air and people don't don't really recall that they're running those. You have four states people could be in with these subscriptions and I don't mean like a state like I'm in Michigan, but the state of being happily hooked, happy not hooked, unhappily hooked and unhappily not hooked. We're obviously interested in where people were most unhappily hooked. They really didn't want to be hooked into a subscription. Which of these subscriptions did you find people uh, were most unhappily hooked into? So the top two were mobile service and Wi-Fi. I think people have a kind of love-hate relationship with that. those things. If, if I had to guess, part of the reason they're, they're describing their relationship that way is because they just don't like the cost. I think the companies, you know, like Verizon's and AT&T's and, and stuff like that, in business terms, have done a nice job making the prices of those things very painful, but also at the end of the day, affordable. I mean, that's what any business is, is trying to do is like get the price just about as high as they can while still getting a, a big mass of consumers. And I think they've done their job because people 
begrudgingly pay every month for for those things. It's funny you say there's there's this juxtaposition too. Sometimes you say in the study that while we love our Spotify and Pandora, we have to get it through our Wi-Fi that we that, that we pay right. for, and so we hate this thing that brings us so much joy in other services. Right. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. What's our big takeaway from this, Andy? I think it's that people should be routinely doing some kind of inventory on their expenses. If for no other reason, that may result in cutting some things. In, in another study recently looked at some rates of cord cutting, uh, people moving away from a traditional cable to the, to the over-the-top streaming services like Netflix. So doing that regular inventory, just to see what's going on, even if you're not going to cut things, at least you're aware of, of your expenses and you're not going to get spooked down the road. I'll link to the study from the waterstonegroup.com site on our show notes page at stackybenjamins.com. Andy Kearns from Digital Third Coast. Thanks for joining us, man. That was fun. Yeah, great to be with you. Thanks to Andy for calling in. Isn't that so true? I mean, that's the genius of subscriptions, I think, OG, that these companies know that, man, once you're in there for six months, seven months, it just becomes a part of your life. You're like, well, no, I got to have my Netflix. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, if it didn't work so good, people wouldn't do it. But uh, that is really funny that the numbers are, are so obscene. I, I, I was thinking about it as as I was listening to you talk to him about it. And I'm thinking, I bet you our number is really high. Because we are, we are totally the, yeah, it's 20 bucks. Yeah, it's $10. Showtime's 10 bucks. I, get d- that. I just signed up for a new subscription yesterday. Uh, it's going to be 10 bucks a month. Yeah, it's just, it's just 10 it's bucks. It's just 10 bucks. It's 10 bucks. Yeah times 40. I like these programs. You know, we've had Thomas Mython from Trim and right. and there's there's programs inside of a lot of the apps that are out there. Like if you have Clarity Money, I think the Bill Shark inside of that and Mint, I'm sure has one. So you can find all these places that will go look for your subscriptions. I think finding out where these subscriptions are and zapping them and just like completely getting rid of them I think the other thing that's really funny too is, uh, and again, just thinking about this personally, they're so scattered throughout all of the different layers of our personal finance that you can't just sit down and do it. You know, we put everything on our American Express card pretty much. You can't sit down with your Amex statement and go through and find all your subscriptions because I have some that hit PayPal, you yeah. know, and I have yeah. a little bit of money in PayPal from time to time. So whatever. And, and, and it's not a, it's not always the same number because, you know, when Hulu comes out for six bucks out of PayPal, if there's three dollars in PayPal, then they take the other three dollars from my bank account. Right. You know, whatever. It's three dollars. But it's also my money at PayPal. <laughs> and and then you've got some money, you know, there's some sub- subscriptions that come out of your checkbook or your Visa card or whatever. You kind of feel like, kind of really you, kind of feel like you need to Marie Kondo the whole thing, don't you? Yeah. You need to calm yeah. the whole thing. But imagine if you could just zap the bad ones. Wouldn't that be great? Like a good air purifier zaps things. This episode of Stacky Benjamins brought to you by Molecule. Was that bad? No, it's just I didn't see it coming. So <laughs> that's, good job. Well, then that's good. Molecule is the first molecular air purifier that reduces symptoms for allergy and asthma sufferers. So I get this thing. It comes in this big, cool box. I mean, just the packaging. And I'm, I'm such a sucker for packaging. Like the second this thing arrives on my doorstep, I'm like, oh, this looks really neat. And it's this big cylinder 
where they've introduced a breakthrough science, apparently, that's finally capable of destroying air pollutants at this at a molecular level. I wish I knew how any of this stuff worked, because seriously, we set it up here for 24 hours. Musty basement. Within 24 hours. Well, you can smell the difference in the air. (laughs) That's horrible. You can smell the molecule. I I don't think they want me saying that. Molecule. You can smell the difference. Smell the difference. Molecule replaces 50 years of antiquated technology. The HEPA filter technology has been used to clean your air. was developed in the 1940s. There have been any major innovations since. Now Molecule's PICO technology, photoelectrochemical oxidation goes beyond the HEPA filter system to both capture and eliminate allergens, mold, bacteria, viruses, and airborne chemicals. That includes pollutants a thousand times smaller than what a HEPA filter can catch. Molecule makes a real difference for asthma and allergy sufferers, helps them better cope with their conditions and significantly reduce their symptoms. One customer reportedly said that after using Molecule in her home that she was able to, quote, breathe through her nose for the first time in 15 years. Do you think that if you've lived in the same house for 15 years and you couldn't breathe through your nose the whole time you were there, maybe you needed to move? Or blow your nose. I'm, or get, I mean, don't get me wrong. Getting Molecule early was a good idea. I should have had, when we were in that three-room apartment, the air quality- <laughs> Where the carbon monoxide was slowly killing you. Oh, it was so- I had headaches all the time. You remember yeah. at the end there, I had headaches and I had to- I, I, We couldn't open up the windows- and because it was, of the window shakers. And it was a friend of mine's dad, and I should have told him he was killing us, but instead we moved. So, <laughs> He's just like, I'm out of here. Yes. I wish I would have had the Molecule. I wish I would have known about Molecule then. Molecule's technology has been funded by the EPA, extensively tested by real people and verified by third parties and university laboratories like the University of South Florida Center for Biological Defense. Center for Biological Defense. Oh, gee. How about that? And the University of Minnesota Particle Calibration Laboratory. It's easy to use and has a clean, sleek design. This Check how cool looking this is. I like the blue light at the top. And seriously, you can put it on silent mode. We put it on auto. And I put it right next to the bed. And that little noise helps me sleep too, which is... Uh, you don't have to pay anything extra for that. So for $75 off your first order, visit M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E.com and enter the promo code SB. That's M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E.com, promo code SB. So happy that Molecule is a new sponsor of the show. So I think besides zapping your uh, subscriptions, OG, that's our first takeaway. Our second takeaway is if you're getting into the financial planning industry, thinking about that look for an internship. And also if you're interviewing financial advisors and maybe you're looking at the options available, hiring a firm that's uh, smart enough to have that succession plan going where they're making sure that even if something happens to your advisor, there are younger advisors in the wings who you already know also is something to consider. Coming down to the basement, we have a real treat. This gentleman has not just built two different companies, he also sold them successfully. And you may know if you're interested in business that when you found one, the big the big idea is to make sure that you have an exit strategy. And David may or may not have it to start. We'll talk to him a little bit about that, but let's also talk to him about how he goes 
from being somebody that maybe is a lot like a lot of you, which is big time working 24-7, burning the candle at both ends, maybe fighting a little bit of burnout, to somebody who's figured out how to work less and make more at the same time. We'll talk to him about tips and tricks that he's used and developed. So happy he's here with us in the basement today. Let's say hello to two-time company founder, David Hauser, coming to the basement. And coming down the steps to the basement, it's Mr. David Hauser. How are you, man? Great. I'm awesome. Well, it's so funny that uh, you would be here in Detroit. I learned recently that you just moved to Austin, Texas, one of my favorite cities. Oh, I love Austin. Uh, we're having a great time and moved only a few months ago, so still experiencing it, but it's, it's been good. I'll tell you what, watch out for the food because you will gain 100 pounds in a hurry there. Ah, I mean, barbecue is awesome. Uh, Tex-Mex and tacos. I mean, you just can't get enough of it. it, it it's great. <laughs> All right. Let's not talk food because I'm starving. But, <laughs> but, but let's talk about this. You are a guy who's known for keeping a high rate of speed, working for yourself, building two companies. You are known to have worked 100 hours a week. And when I do the math on 100 hours, for those of you not sitting in front of a calculator, that means that you've got only 10 hours a day for everything else on the average on the average day. How long did you maintain that pace building your two companies? Uh, it was probably four or five years. It was a long time. Um, it probably it felt longer uh, for sure. But yeah, I mean, there was no time for anything else. And my habits were extremely bad in terms of work, like working until three, four in the morning. So not even get in the 10 hours I had left, not even getting good sleep, right? Which was just a horrible habit to be in. And I'm quite sure if I wasn't at the time 20 or whatever, I don't think I could have kept that up. Like it just wasn't good. But we're kind of fed that though, aren't we? I mean, everybody around us, especially when you're in startup culture, this is what you have to do. These are the dues that you have to pay. Yeah, I think there's a lot of that, not just in startup culture, but in a lot of different businesses, right? In finance and other places where you just have to work, quote unquote, a lot of hours. And it's the equivalent of hard work means number of hours. And I, I learned over time that that's not the case, right? I, I, I moved myself down to less than 15 hours a week. And I think I was getting far more done in those 15 hours than I was in a hundred because I was being smart about my work. I was delegating, I was managing, I was doing the things I should be doing rather than just putting in hours. I want to dig into that in just a second, but to go back those five years though, working crap loads of hours, was it successful? I mean, look, the, the, the business grew. Um, I don't think it was because of putting those hours in, but the business grew. Uh, so I can't look back on it and say, I wish I didn't do that because we were successful. Right. Yeah. But I could have done it in a different way. What was the toll that that took on you? Describe like David before and after 100 hours a week for five years. <laughs> well, I mean, I gained a lot of weight. I was eating ba- you know, bad food to say the least, right? Like when you start to feel tired and you're working that much, you just grab for whatever's available, right? It could be pizza, it could be sugar, it could be whatever to just fuel the next hour. So way overweight, everything hurt. I didn't even sleep well when I slept. I was definitely cranky and snippy with people and mean and like all of the things that people typically think of, like I, I did all of it, right? And I was just not a nice person. 
where was the breaking point? Because we have people on here. It seems like most people, David, can kind of remember where they were when they're they're like, crap's got to change. I got to I, I can't continue this. Do you remember where you were when you said this has got to be different? Yeah, I remember two things. So one, when I decided like this was not healthy for me, right? I remember walking into our controller's office, like part-time bookkeeper. I had these jeans on that I had worn a number of other times. I'm like, oh my God, now the belt is tight. Not just the jeans is tight. There's like fat rolling over the top of it. Like everything, it just doesn't fit. And I'm like, this is not good. These are the big jeans (laughs) that I bought. (laughs) And so at that point, like it, it was a crystallization in my mind. And then the other thing I remember too is thinking to myself, I don't like doing the stuff that I'm doing in the 100 hours. So stepping back and saying, okay, what can I do differently to change what I do in my 100 hours? That was the beginning of the journey to reducing hours. I love that idea because, you know, all these people now espousing the financial independence and retire early, really examining their life and going, where does this escalator end? And it sounds like you you kind of had that same moment. Like, where's this escalator even headed? Yeah, I mean, nothing was good about that escalator. <laughs> That's for sure. I think it was headed to a place where I was going to crash and burn. Yeah, and which is funny because it sounds like you were making good money at the time. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, the business is growing, you know, doubling or more every year. You know, we're hiring more staff. Good things are happening. The team around us is getting better and better. Everything's good. It's so incredible when you have that realization, because as you know, a lot of people start off the journey and they think, if I just get the money, everything's fine. And that's clearly not the case. I fell into that bucket for sure. Like, oh, once I get to this level of money or once I can buy this or do this, then everything's going to be okay. You know, I, I have far more money than I used to, especially when I was 20. And I think I was much happier with less money than more money. There's probably some in between that makes sense. But I was on that wheel of, oh, when I can do this, everything will be better. And you get to it and you're like, "Eh, it's the same or worse. Yeah, that's when it's a wake-up call. You got more money and you're like, okay, quality of life, not not as good. You said that you started putting those systems and processes in place. And I love this because you can only think about so many things during a day. Tell me what kind of the first big things were that you changed in your day to start making them better. Yeah, the first thing I did is I started really building a routine and sticking to that routine every day. So even if it was going to the gym for 30 minutes, doing that every day, even if I didn't work out at the gym, I still went there and showered and got ready for work, right? Like, and just made that a constant routine that repeated again and again. And then that flowed into like my calendar, right? So my calendar then started ruling my life that's, in a good, in a good that's, way. That's funny though. I just want to, I don't want to cut you off a lot, yeah. but I want to stop at the gym for a minute because I'll bet just in the process of going to the gym, I heard somebody say this just a couple of weeks ago. They're like, I decided that I would do one push up a day. And I knew that once I got on the ground and I was doing one push up, I was going to do 20. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? This the process of getting your ass on the ground to do one was what it, t- it takes. I bet you went to the gym. If you were changing at the gym and you're there, you're like, why? I, I might as well work out. And you've paid for it too, right? right so like right. there's an additional pressure. And for me, the routine was just very freeing compared to worrying about it. And every day I did the same thing. So that expanded over time. And and the realization I got to was I could take a lot of things out of my day by changing the people and processes around me to delegate better. And as an entrepreneur or even just anyone really that likes controlling the things around them, I'm very controlling in that way. It was hard to give that up. But once I did, that's when things started to change. That's interesting. Lots of pressure from the family then. 
Uh, I didn't even have a family at the time, right? Okay. So I was, uh, I was thinking, I think it was more pressure, like how do I grow this business outside of me, right? So that was the impetus that pushed me forward. Like I can't be the bottleneck anymore. I had to solve that problem. Is it hard learning how to delegate the stuff that you've done by yourself for such a long period of time? It's scary, which I think in turn makes it hard. I'm happy I did those things first before we hired the customer service person. I did customer service before we did, you know, whatever it was, me or my business partner did those things. So we knew who to hire, but it was very scary giving up control. I can vividly remember traveling to the UK with my family. There was like at least 10 or 15 processes that I was critical in. And I was scrambling around. It was, I had to find internet access and all these things. And it was very stressful. But by the end of that period, I had like half as many things I was critical for, right? Because all of a sudden I was forced to push them away. And it's scary to do, but you have to do it. It's funny because as I hear you talk, I think there's people listening going, well, you know what? I, I don't have this issue myself, but, but you can even do this in your home life. Like if you're the person who is responsible for groceries and all of a sudden you start having groceries delivered to your house, there's a freak out factor going, well, I'm paying for this extra service. Why the hell am I doing this? I could job for my own groceries. But that allows you to then be more cognizant and be in the, f- the fewer processes that you're in yourself. You must have seen yourself getting better at the fewer things that you were in when you started delegating away these other things. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I had much more time and focus on those things. And now I've gotten very good at delegating probably to an extreme where, you know, it, delegating things like the grocery shopping and, you know, anything I can delegate, I try to. When you can focus on something for an hour where before I would get distracted every 15 minutes, that is a major change. Have you read The E-Myth? Yes. As you know, then, there's a difference between delegating and abdicating, right? And a lot of people hear this and they're like, oh, I'm just going to push this stuff to other people. And as you know, from reading the e-myth, that never works. You push it to other people and next thing you know, they don't care as as much as you do. How do you have a system of follow-up with these people to make sure that you still are engaged enough, David, that Mm -hmm. the work actually gets done right in the way you want? Yeah. So I think there's two different types of things you delegate. One is the menial tasks that can just be specified do A, B, and C, and give me D. If that's groceries, if that's book a dentist appointment, those are things that require both little follow-up and interaction. And that stuff, I think anyone can delegate relatively easily. There's also less fear there. The more difficult stuff is within your job, the things you delegate, right? Think about this and do that is a much more complex statement. So I always just start with the easiest stuff. Like, again, deliver me A, B, and C and then start to get into a rhythm of communication with someone that I can start to delegate more and more. And then as, as I built a team, obviously the people around me are smarter and smarter. So there's less of a fear of delegation because I can say, I want to accomplish X. And they say, here's how you do that. Do you start then writing out what all the processes are that you have and which one's the biggest pain in your ass and you don't want to do that one? Or do you start off with the one that you just can't devote enough time to and you have have that be the thing that you delegate? I personally start with the easy small things because it gets into this habit of how to specify, how to be specific, how, how to explain exactly what you want and the return that you want. Once you're in that process, then you can start to prioritize and say the most difficult thing that takes the most amount of my time, but is least important. That is where I start to move things out of my tray. I want to be working on 
both urgent, important matters, not urgent, unimportant matters, which is what most of us spend our time doing. Right. But how do you get completely out of the urgent box? Because it seems like to some degree, you don't want to be in the urgent box at all. If you can stay away from there and be more strategically minded as the CEO, you're even happier in that spot. Yeah, but I, look, there's there's no uh, arguing that you're never 100% out of that, right? <laughs> there are urgent matters that come up Unfortunately. Um, that are important. That's how it happens. But yeah, more time spent working on the business than in the business is probably you know the goal of a, a good CEO or, or founder. Talking to people that are brand new at this, not just at delegating, but also at entrepreneurship or, or mm-hmm. uh, leading a team, there must be some books or some resources that have been important to you along the way, David. Point us to a few of those. What's been instrumental in your growth and development? Yeah, so definitely the book, Getting Things Done, How to Create Task Lists, How to Get Things Out of the Inbox. Any kind of learning around Inbox Zero, I think, kind of continues that journey, right? And understanding that leaving emails in your inbox as a way to create a task list is not very efficient. So it's that process of moving them out. I think the other thing that that is quite easy and relatively inexpensive is getting a virtual assistant. And everyone's talked about this, right? Like this is in so many books, but now it is so cheap that I can get into that process very quickly and anyone can because for 150 to 200 bucks a month, I can have someone doing those tasks. Between those two, I think that's where I would start. It's kind of funny. I want to morph just just briefly talk about uh, one of your businesses, Grasshopper. I mean, when you talk about virtual assistant, it's, there's a very easy connection between what you do at Grasshopper and having a virtual assistant. Did that genesis come about that way? Like you're dealing with somebody far away and you're like, wow, if I could make it look local. <laughs> like, aha, this is, how did that business start? That business started with the simple concept that I didn't want to have my cell phone number, the thing ringing when people called me. I wanted to have a professional image and there was nothing available. This was 14, 15 years ago when we started it and we since sold the business. But just having the ability to not have it go to my personal voicemail, like that was the whole idea, literally. Do you remember where you were? Were you, were you walking down the street? Were you in a, what was it? A, was it a grad I was school? college? I was at Babson College and running other little businesses. And I mean, the realization really came when my cell phone continuously rang and especially at night, late at night, because, you know, you put a a phone number on a website, people don't expect it to be your personal cell phone ever. Right. Right. So (laughs) getting a call at one in the morning, the person's expecting to get voicemail. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And then surprise. Yeah. Uh, And then Chargeify. How did you come up with that idea? So that, that was within Grasshopper. We had built billing systems so many times four times to be exact, uh, learning each time. And we said, this is ridiculous. We're wasting a lot of time and money on building something that is is important to the business, but doesn't move the business forward. So we figured other people had that problem and we kind of took what we built and launched it out for others to use because why focus on that when I can do something more important in the business? Had you already stopped working a hundred hours a week when Chargeify came around? Yes. Yeah, I, I was I was probably in a more reasonable, you know, 40, 50 hours a week, something like that. I had not started to tear that down further. That was kind of in the middle of our growth pattern at, at Grasshopper. But then I'm thinking that doesn't surprise me because I'm thinking based on the talk that we just had about having more time, that there's more time then to have ideas like Chargeify, right? Like what can we do with this that advances the ball forward? Yeah, I mean, I had this conversation with someone the other day, like just the simple idea of increasing free time to think is very powerful. 
So what I did a year ago was I deleted Facebook and Instagram from my phone. Holy crap. Um, you know how many people are shaking right now? <laughs> I, to, look, I was very worried. I did it around uh, Christmas of last year or maybe Thanksgiving. It was a family event because I kept feeling like every time I pick up my phone in free time, I'm just like scrolling through stuff. Now it's not even on the phone. So in that free time, I think about things. And to me, I relate it very much to the shower. We all say like we have great ideas in the shower. It's because it's this free time to think where we're not messing with something else. And I think just the idea of deleting it from the phone is very powerful. What a great idea. I talk to people as people listen to the show. No, I talk to people, you know, we, we have guests on maybe five or six guests a week. That's just this huge idea. Like I don't have to delete Facebook completely. But right. if I delete it on my phone, I was thinking about Cheryl and I at dinner last night, my spouse and I, and there was one point at dinner, we were both looking for something. It was a part of the conversation, but both of us had this discussion afterwards, like had we not even had the app on our phone to find that, we would have just had a different conversation together that probably would have been better than, than both of us spending half the dinner on our phone <laughs> looking for this thing. It's just yeah. fabulous. You must have found your relationships got better. Yeah, I felt like everything kind of just had a, a market improvement from a very small change. It didn't impact my life in a negative way. It was all positive and it wasn't a big change. It felt scary, but it wasn't a big change. Isn't it wild though that these tools were made to make our, these relationships better? And what you're saying here is they kind of made them a little bit worse? Yeah, I mean, I think, it, I think there's a lot of people that are starting to realize that. And Facebook has its place and it's good for certain things. Like I'm not an anti-social media person, I don't personally use it that much, but it's great. My mom lives in India. So being able to connect all the way across the other side of the world with a huge time difference, it's nice to see her photos sometimes, or she sees her grandkids' photos, things like that. I get it. But there's no reason in my idle time that I need to scroll through and see some ridiculous posts about political conversations that I don't care about. I still think of you as a very hard charging dude, even though there might be 15 hours a week on quote, you know, in the trenches at work. What are you charging on now? I kind of stepped back after I sold the business and I've written a book called Unstoppable, which really puts together a lot of these things that I've started to find of optimizations, everything from sleep, fuel and diet, supplementation, and things like this, like to just deleting Facebook from your phone, like little stuff. Because my goal was to just improve my life overall. And I heard so many different pieces of advice. Do this, do this, do this. I had tried everything. I did Ironmans, marathons. I couldn't lose weight. I was frustrated. And I found a journey that, that worked for me and created a framework. And, and that's really what the book's about. So that's what I've been spending my time on. And it's been a lot of fun dealing with a lot of different people and seeing their journeys to success and dropping the frustration that they've dealt with. That is fantastic. And Unstoppable is available everywhere? Uh, so it will be uh, in March. Um, it's not available yet, but uh, you can find it at unstoppablebook.com. Um, sign up for the mailing list, whatever, and we'll send you early when it comes out. That's a, isn't that exciting, by the way, this whole process of having the book get ready to come out? Uh, it's both exciting and a, and a lot of work. Like this is not a world that I'm familiar with. So it's been a great learning journey, but it's been a tremendous amount of work, way more than I thought. I don't know if I'll necessarily do it again, but it, it's been a lot of fun. Well, and thanks for spending some time with us talking about it and talking about how you get so much stuff done in such a little amount of time and still maintain your sanity. I really appreciate it. David Hauser, thanks for hanging out with us. Thanks, Joe. 
Hey there, trivia fans. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And by now, you know that I always emphasize great grammar in Dicton. That's why, with Grammarly watching closely, I'm going to deliver sublimely precise trivia. Check this out. Today, we're celebrating a nursery man named John Chapman, who was born in Massachusetts in 1774, but spent his late years in Fort Wayne, Indiana. People say he was all, t- all true. Well, he, he was really, really kind to people. Yeah, he, was, he was a good guy. And maybe he was, but he was actually more focused on money than many believe. Who's bought into his legend? So here's today's question. We know Chapman as another name. What is it? I'll be back with the answer after Joe tells you a little more about Grammarly. Well, I wish they had a version of Grammarly that was uh, for the spoken word. Maybe that's what Grammarly's working on now because they're always working on something over there. But thanks to Grammarly for supporting Stacky Benjamins. Grammarly is a communication tool. I'm laughing because I think Doug is a communication tool. <laughs> that, that helps people improve their writing to be mistake-free, clear, and effective. They encourage everyone, even the best students and top professionals like Doug, to use Grammarly to do their best work and accomplish even more of their goals. Grammarly is a writing assistant that makes you look and sound smarter when you write. Because Doug can read these words. I just think he needs a pronunciation guide. They help people show their best self through writing, and it's available across platforms, including an online browser extension. That's what I use, a desktop editor. I use that. You use the mobile keyboard checker. Mm-hmm. Yep, mobile keyboard. Uh, Grammarly is available on multiple browsers, Chrome, Firefox, and platforms like uh, iOS, Android, Windows, Mac. Don't think there's any others that gets it. They're free product reviews, critical spelling and grammar. I use the premium account, which looks out for spelling, grammar, plus advanced punctuation, structure, style within context, vocabulary suggestions, conciseness, and readability for different occasions. I think that's why Doug's all about this. He found out that Grammarly says, I know all the words. 99% bigger vocabulary, just saying, than most Grammarly users. I have to confess, I got last week's. I was down last week? 96%. Slipping dog. I I got I gotta improve my vocabulary. So close more deals at work this year with your email. Stop making typos on your phone. Polish your resume to get that new job. Uh, a friend of mine should be using Grammarly because he was playing a board game online with me and he said, I gotta go, I'm getting gripped at. And I was fairly you're like, whoa, dude. I was fairly certain T- C- TMI. <laughs> yeah. I was fairly certain his wife was griping at him. But who knows? Maybe he was getting gripped. Maybe he was, yeah, getting gripped. Head to Grammarly.com slash SB and you'll get 20% off your Grammarly premium account today. That's Grammarly.com slash SB for 20% off your Grammarly premium account. Kiyo trivia heads. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and the... What? Pronounce that Chow. Chow. Seriously. Okay. <laughs> All right. Kiyo trivia heads. I'm back with today's inconceivable trivia answer. Here was the question. Born in Massachusetts in 1774, John Chapman, a nurseryman, was known by another name. How do we remember him on his day today? 
Chapman travailed the Midwest planting apples, which his legend says he did because he was all altruist. He was really nice. But in fact, John, whom his friends called Johnny, actually was developing orchards that he'd occasionally check back on and sell later for a profit. While you and I call him Johnny Appleseed, we could have called him Johnny Moneymaker. Am I right or am I right? If you got it right, treat yourself to some chipotle or uh, olive garden because you deserve it. If not, go back and ask certain where you might have messed up. That's exactly what I do, you know, if, if I ever messed up. Hey, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline and tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they put what you value first. And we asked some of our friends on our Facebook page what they value first. And Graham said, Jim Time and Good Scotch, all about the balance, OG. Yeah, you need to have good Jim Time if you want to have any amount of scotch, because that just kind of hangs out if you don't... uh have high metabolism. I also like those in that order too. Don't try the good scotch and then the gym time. Might uh, Well, you can one time. You should try that once just to just to understand why you should never do that again. Just just before you file your disability claim. <laughs> the answer is actually your family and your time. And that's why they've been buying quality term life insurance actually simple. If you head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now, you'll get a free quote there very quick. It takes just a second. Their application's simple and online. Prices are affordable. You get an instant coverage decision, none of that waiting several weeks. All policies issued by the parent company, Mass Mutual, which is more than 160 years old. And today, we're throwing out the Haven Lifeline to our new BFF, Roxana. Say hi, Roxana. Hey, Joe. It's Roxana here. I have a question I'm hoping you and OG can answer. If not, you can just let Doug make something up. I have an old 401k at my last employer. I don't think I'll be traditionally working anymore, and I do not have a traditional IRA, so I have left my balance there. It's a really good plan, very low fees. It's all invested in Vanguard funds within the 401k. Here's my question. I'm only 80% vested in that. Are there any implications for leaving an old 401k with an old employer if you're not 100% vested? It just seems it would grow and I would get 80% of it when I finally do cash it out. But I'm, I'm just not really sure if the vesting has any implications on it. Thank you. Great. Thanks for the question, Roxana. This is something that comes up quite a bit, actually. Yeah, great question. The vesting thing. So when it comes to the vesting, you are always 100% vested in your own contributions. So every dollar that you put in over your working career at that firm is all automatically yours. On the employer matching side, that's the part that's going to be a little different. So maybe you put in a hundred thousand over your lifetime. Your company has put in fifty thousand. You get credit for that, and you get all the growth and all that sort of stuff. But the day that you leave, if you are not fully vested in their contribution, they're going to take their their amount back. So if they would have contributed fifty thousand, but you only got eighty percent of that, you'll actually see a withdrawal from your account of about $10,000. It's not taxable. There's no penalties. It's not reported anywhere. So you don't have to worry about that. But then yes, what's left there is going to be all yours. And if they haven't made an adjustment yet to your 401k, they will. They're not going to let you accumulate it and then 
when you go to take out, you know, a thousand bucks, only send you 800 and say 20% of that's ours. That's not how that works. They're going to take it all right away and be done with it. And then whatever's left is left. I do want you to double check though. You said one thing that's uh, always has my spidey sense tingling a little bit. You said, quote, it's very low fees. We have Vanguard. Well, just because you have a Vanguard funds within your 401k does not mean that the 401k plan itself is low cost. In fact, as you can imagine, the cost to operate and manage a 401k plan for an employer is not zero. It's something. So depending on how big the firm is and depending on how much in assets the firm has with the 401k provider will determine how that fee structure is. If it's a plan that has 25 million or less in it probably or 30 million or less in assets, meaning all of the employees put together have 25 or 30 million or less total, then I guarantee that you're paying something for that plan because the cost to operate a 401k plan are in the high tens of thousands, if not low hundreds of thousands of dollars a year with all the regulatory uh, requirements and tax reporting and consultants that you have to hire and things like that. So unless it's a really, really, really big firm, then you're probably paying something. And if you have Vanguard already, I don't know why you wouldn't just transfer the money to an IRA at Vanguard and then you have zero cost for implementing it rather than some. Now, there's some reasons why you wouldn't want to do that. If you need uh, liquidity, you're pre-59 and a half and you're going to need some money out of that or something like that. So there's some more to this story here. But um, but just double check that and see if, in fact, you really are paying nothing. Because if you are paying something, then it could be better to uh, just have it on your own. Thanks for the question, Roxana. We also get letters down here in the basement. And today's letter comes to us from Tara. Tara says, hello, I'm in a 40-person company and currently investing in their simple IRA, but I don't like any of the funds, most of which are target date funds. I'm trying to get some exchange-traded fund options in the simple, but I'm told that it's impossible. In his words, and I guess his is the plan rep, I would do ETFs as well, but when someone's putting in $100 a month split into three funds, they don't have enough to buy even a single share and then the cash sits there until the participant has enough money accumulated in cash and decides to do something. Most people do not want to have to do this every month or two. You also have the cost of buying an ETF or stock every month. The company simple plan has grown over the last five years. So we've looked at this division of fidelity. They've recently lost a basket of 25 commission for ETFs that make it a bit easier to go this route. And there are a few places that now allow fractional shares of ETFs. So we're getting closer to this being viable. But another issue is that this type of plan self-directed puts heavier due diligence on the employer. You can buy anything in here. Let's say you buy an ETF that buys Bitcoin and you lose all your money. I, as the advisor to plan and the plan sponsor, both have a fiduciary responsibility to all the participants. This wouldn't go over well with any compliance firm or regulatory body that this investment was even allowed. That's what the advisor says. The question is, is the plan advisor being lazy or can I really not get any ETFs in a simple IRA plan at a firm this size? Thank you. Tara. Hey, Tara. I think that the answer is probably a little bit of both, to be honest with you. A simple IRA plan is generally administered through an investment advisor representative or a broker. And usually that broker has a relationship with the business owner or a higher up person, HR person or something like that at the firm. And so they say, hey, we, you know, we need to do a retirement plan for you, the business owner. But P.S., you got to offer this to your employees as well. And so it kind of originally gets set up as a really easy, low cost way to offer some little retirement savings. 
as the plan continues to grow, it becomes more and more inefficient as an option. And you're experiencing some of those growing pains right now. So there's a little bit of both sides to this. The broker right now is getting a commission probably every time that payroll comes around. If you got 40 people and 40 people are making $50,000 a year, that's $2 million a year of salary. And if everybody's putting 3% in and you're getting your 3% match, that's $120,000 a year of new money coming in, which is not a ton. But in the commission world, that's probably seven, dollars $8,000 a year of commission. So if I'm a broker and I'm getting ma- and I'm making seven eight thousand dollars a year, I don't know why I would want to have anybody change it. <laughs> that's a that's a pretty good deal for me. But by the same token, it is getting to the point. It sounds like where there are some opportunities that your that your plan will have as it continues to get bigger. Again, back to the other question that we had about vesting, it still doesn't mean it's free. So just because you have an ETF that's low cost you may end up picking up the cost of that operating that plan later. And you can have low-cost mutual funds and things like that. You don't have to actually have them be ETFs. And that's the lazy part from the broker standpoint, I think. Well, there's a lot of plans out there. Most plans don't allow you to buy fractional shares. A lot of plans do make the broker manually go in there and buy the shares when you get full shares. So that part can't be automated. I don't know that that's lazy as much as it's super time intensive. It's just not worth the money. I know that's going to come in the future, Tara, but without getting into all the broker stuff that OG explained very well, I just think this, I think you might be fighting the wrong battle. There's not that big an expense difference between an ETF, which a lot of people now just think is synonymous with index. Indexes can also be purchased in the mutual fund form and the advisor can have those in the simple. So instead of asking for an ETF, which the broker's answering you very genuinely, listen, this isn't going to work for anybody. Instead, just ask them about indexes. Your your fee may be a microcosmic point higher and you end up with what you want. The advisor at the level of company, small company you work for, ends up being able to continue to guide the plan. So I think you end up getting what I think you're really asking for. Yeah. And the responsibilities for from the fiduciary standpoint is is always at the employer level. In fact, I find it really interesting that a lot of even big employers don't recognize the liability that they have to make sure that they manage it. And you're right. I think on the employer side, they do have a ton of fiduciary responsibility. And there's ways that advisors can shoulder a lot of that responsibility through the use of certain types of uh, designations and things like that. So again, there's a little bit of kind of half sort of truth there. Like, yeah, well, we don't want to let you have Bitcoin. I would never let you have a Bitcoin mutual fund in any plans that we represent either for that exact same reason. Also because it's not good for you, but you can create and design the plan that you want that has the stuff inside of it that you want but it's not necessarily going to always be 100% cost-free. Somebody's going to have to write a check for it because as plans get bigger and bigger, they have more and more scrutiny around them. IRS require reports. We have plans that you've got to hire an auditor every year to audit. You've got uh, actuaries that have to review the plan to make sure that everybody's contributing the right amount. And so somebody's paying for that. And when your company is a really small company, 40-person plan, that person is going to be you, the employee, because the business owner is not going to want to write a check for $150,000 for it. So it's a gimme and a gotcha. It's kind of, you know, smack dab in the middle. But I think that like what Joe said, stop asking for ETFs and just ask for low cost passive mutual funds 
and see where that gets you. Thanks for the question, Tara. If you've got a question for the show, head to stackybenjamins.com and you'll see at the top of the page questions for the show and you'll see all the ways you interface with us here on the show. A couple quick housekeeping things, OG, before we uh, before we call this uh, night. Detroit peeps, Friday the 22nd, that is next Friday, OG's coming to town. Richie's also going to be here in town working on some uh, projects that we have going on here. And uh, figured out where we're having our party yet, or is this going to be in your at your house? I have not, and Mom will not let it be at the basement, so that ain't happening. But and it's not happening, not happening at my house either. We don't have a place, but make sure you've got the twenty second open on your calendar. Whether you have to come, whether you have to take a day off work, we're okay with that. Or 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 if you want to hang out with us after work, we're going to be someplace in the metro detroit area until 7 p.m i will have the, part, of, part of the game is trying to figure out where we're going to be there yes if you need to find us if you don't get the stacker sign up for the stacker stackybedjamins.com forward slash stacker and you'll get it that way or be in our closed facebook group if you don't do either of those things you don't like email you don't like facebook just email me and say joe i got this on my calendar where are we going to be joe at stackybedjamins.com and we'd love to hang out with you for uh, NCAA First Friday action. That's always so fun, the first round. Such a good time. That's number one. Number two is OG and his team are taking clients. So if you're looking for better financial help in your corner, now's the time to pull the trigger on that and make sure that you don't waste any more time. Stackingbedjamins.com forward slash OG uh, is your first step there. All right. That's going to do it for today. Doug, take it from here, man. What should we have learned today? So, what did we learn today? First, take some advice from David Hauser. Life isn't about working harder, it's about working smarter. You don't need to live on quinoa or apple seeds to grow your brain. Just think closely about what you really need to do yourself and what you can delegate to someone else. Second, hooked on subscriptions? Maybe you're spending way more than you think. Time for a subscription audit. But the big lesson? Trying to pronounce words correctly all the time is exhausting. I just don't have any more energy for this. Time for a well-deserved respit. Respit. Re- re- it's a break, people. Just take. I'm taking a break. Big thanks to David Hauser for joining us. You'll find links to his new books and his website, davidhauser.com. Yeah, you know where. At our show notes page. Thanks to Andy Kearns from Digital Third Coast for joining us. Wait, there's a first and second digital. Anyway, he's from Digital Third Coast. We loved having him. You'll find a link to the Waterstone Management Study on subscriptions on our show. Oh, that's how you pronounce that, subscriptions. Anyway, you'll find him on our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com. This show was created by Joe Saul Cihai, produced by Richie Rutter-Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I just jumped the shark. SB Podcast may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remuneration. There's no way you would take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. 
This show is for entertainment purposes only. And before making any financial moves, consult with a real financial advisor. Welcome to the after show. This is the part of the show that doesn't exist. What happens here stays here. You know, we were talking about that first Friday of the NCAA tournament happening Mm -hmm. next week. And what do you think about when you think about watching basketball at a bar? Chicken wings. Don't you? Okay. We're going to have the first thought, but it might be the third or fourth. I'm totally having wings next week. Okay. Some thieves steal jewelry. This is written by Martha White at money.com. Some thieves steal jewelry. Others target car stereos. One father and son criminal duo, though, set their sights on something meatier. Over the course of eight months, the pair who both worked as cooks at a restaurant in Syracuse, New York, Vice reports, allegedly ordered $41,000 worth of chicken wings, stuck the restaurant with a bill, and then sold the purloined goods when they were caught last month. Father Paul Rojek and son Joshua Rojek were each charged with larceny and falsifying business records. Vice did some back of the envelope math and figured out that over the course of their criminal career, the men made off with roughly 357,000 chicken wings, probably even more if they were paying lower wholesale prices. The poultry pilferers, that's a lot of peas, reportedly sold the wings to other restaurants or on the street. This wasn't even the first time Paul Rojek was collared over chicken. The 56-year-old was arrested in 2014 for stealing wings from another area restaurant, according to local news outlet CNY Central. That kind of meat adds up to some serious dough at around $10 an order. The Rojek's employer couldn't or could have potentially lost out on some $300,000 in revenue, assuming a dozen wings per order. If convicted of the charges, it's safe to assume, wait for it, the Rojeks will be cooped up for some time. Back to you in the studio, Bill. Well, Stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans, and all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, 
there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.